Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, self-harm, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 16-year-old Rachel Schoff squirmed in the passenger seat of her father's car. She tried not to panic as they pulled up to a stoplight. They were only a few minutes from the police station now. She wasn't sure she would be able to keep it together. Her father, Rusty, patted her on the back warmly. It was obvious that she was nervous and he tried to reassure her. He told Rachel there was nothing to worry about. Taking a polygraph was no big deal. And hopefully it would help the authorities track down her missing friend, Skylar. Rachel hardly responded to her father's encouragement. She stared out of the window silently, her eyes transfixed on the traffic jam ahead. If only her friend Sheila were with her, then she would know exactly what to do. Rachel felt her chest tightening. Her breathing came shallow and quick. It was like she was being suffocated. She undid her seatbelt and sat up straight. When the car stopped again, she threw open the door and ran onto the road without warning. Stuck in traffic, Rusty could only watch as his daughter sprinted across the busy street, narrowly avoiding the oncoming cars. In a flash, she vanished around the corner. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed the tumultuous friendship between 16-year-old Skylar niece, Sheila Eddy, and Rachel Schoff. Though Skylar and Sheila had been friends for years, Everything changed in high school after Rachel entered the picture. Over time, the relationship turned toxic until Sheila and Rachel became convinced that they had to cut Skylar out of their lives permanently. This week, we'll cover Sheila and Rachel's sinister plot and the life-shattering consequences of their teenage drama. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. At 12.30 a.m. on July 6, 2012, teenager Skylar Neese snuck out of her parents' home. She climbed through her window and tiptoed across the front lawn of the apartment complex to meet her friends, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schoff, outside. 
It was supposed to be a harmless night out. None of the girls said much as Skylar climbed into Sheila's silver sedan. Though the trio had been drifting apart for months, Sheila and Rachel had practically begged her to come out with them this time. Skylar had perhaps hoped for a warmer welcome, but was happy to scroll on her phone while Sheila quietly drove them to a secluded spot in the woods. Regardless of how much the three of them had been arguing lately, it felt nice to be included. Skylar couldn't help but smile as the glow of the streetlights rushed past the window. Sheila and Rachel, on the other hand, couldn't have been more nervous. They had spent weeks meticulously planning that night. It was time for them to get rid of Skylar. Then, at last, they could be together without her always bothering them. After a few minutes, Sheila and Rachel finally struck up a thin conversation, doing their best to seem casual. When Skylar asked why they were wearing hoodies in the middle of summer, the girls shrugged and claimed to be cold. Both kept their arms pinned to their sides to ensure the knives hidden under their clothes were still concealed. It wasn't easy to act natural, as it took a full 30 minutes for the girls to reach their destination. Around 1 a.m., they crossed the West Virginia state line and entered a dark forest near Brave, Pennsylvania. The secluded back roads were the perfect place to smoke, far away from the prying eyes of any adults. Sheila pulled onto a narrow gravel path and slowly wound through the pitch black woods. Enormous pines loomed as the girls slithered deeper into the wilderness. When they finally stopped on the edge of the tree line, Sheila ordered them out of the vehicle. She didn't want her interior to smell like smoke, so she ushered her friends down the road a bit before lighting up. Skylar was the last one out of the car and didn't hurry to catch up to the other two. She watched as Sheila and Rachel whispered urgently to one another a few steps in front of her. It looked like things hadn't changed after all. Once again, she was the odd one out, but she was too tired to argue. She just wanted to get high and then go back home. She would deal with everything else in the morning. The girls stopped after a minute or so and huddled together, still illuminated by the sedan's headlights. Sheila pulled out a joint, but had trouble getting her lighter to spark. Skylar had left a spare one back in the car and offered to go and get it. As soon as her back was turned, Sheila and Rachel locked eyes. They reached under their hoodies in unison and gripped the hidden knives tightly. On three, Rachel whispered, one. Two, three. They sunk the blades into Skylar's back. Skylar yelped in pain. Before she could process what had happened, Sheila and Rachel slashed at her a second time. Their blows made her stagger, but she managed to stay on her feet. Skylar stumbled forward and started running for the safety of the car. Unfortunately, Rachel was faster. She lunged after Skylar and tackled her to the ground hard. The two of them wrestled for a knife as Sheila caught up and attacked Skylar from above. Fighting for her life, Skylar grabbed Rachel's knife and slashed her across the ankle. But soon, Rachel grabbed it back, and after that, Skylar couldn't stop the relentless assault. In the end, all she could do was scream as Rachel and Sheila stabbed her over and over and over. A few seconds later, 
it was done. Covered in blood, the girl stood in silence for a brief moment, gazing at Skylar's lifeless body. They had really done it. Sheila told Rachel to grab the shovel from the trunk. The two girls tried for several minutes to dig Skylar's grave, but the ground was too hard for them. So instead, they dragged her body just off the road and covered it as best as they could. When that was done, they ran back to the car, changed into the clean clothes they'd stashed in the trunk, and drove off just as planned. Before the reality of what they'd done could fully sink in, the girls got their story straight. They couldn't afford to have any regrets yet. Before I continue with Sheila and Rachel's psychology, please note, while I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2014 essay about cooperative murder, forensic psychologist Dr. Joni E. Johnston describes what can lead two or more people to kill someone together. She writes about the ways in which two troubled individuals can form a dysfunctional relationship and then enable each other's bad behavior. Sooner or later, they can push each other to act on their worst impulses. Sheila and Rachel were equally responsible for Skylar's murder, but it may not have happened at all had they not encouraged one another. Individually, both girls had their own issues, but being together was the critical factor. In Dr. Johnston's words, for certain pairs of criminals, the strength of the dysfunctional relationship pushes them over the edge from dark fantasies into evil deeds. Now, their cooperation had led to the death of their best friend. On the dark drive back to West Virginia that night, Sheila and Rachel made sure they knew their story backwards and forwards. If anyone asked, they had snuck out with Skylar that night, but dropped her off back home safe and sound before midnight. They were sure no one would ever know what had really happened, but the girls weren't in the clear just yet. The next morning, Skylar's father, Dave Neese, knocked on her bedroom door to wake her up. When he got no response, he tried to open it, but found it was locked. Confused, he grabbed a coat hanger from the closet and used it to pop open the door. Skylar's bed looked like it had been slept in, but she was nowhere to be seen. Concerned, he phoned his wife, Mary, and told her their daughter wasn't home. Mary assumed that Skylar had woken up early to go shopping before her summer job that afternoon. Dave wasn't convinced, especially since the door had been locked from the inside. Like any worried parent, he began to phone Skylar's friends to see if he could find her. His first call was to Sheila. She was already awake and waiting when her phone buzzed. She had been expecting to hear from Skylar's parents and knew that if she was going to avoid suspicion, deceiving Dave and Mary Niece would be the first real test. She took a breath and answered calmly. When Dave asked her if she knew where Skylar was, Sheila said no. She quickly convinced him they hadn't talked since the previous night, and he hung up a few minutes later. Sheila was thrilled Dave had believed her so easily. If everyone else was as gullible as he was, no one would ever catch them. Her burst of confidence was short-lived, however, because around this time, she got a distressing call from Rachel. In a panic, 
Rachel told Sheila that she'd lost her cell phone the previous night. Apparently, it fell out of her pocket during the attack, and she hadn't noticed until a few hours later. Sheila felt a knot form in the pit of her stomach. Clearly, she was going to have to do everything herself. She told Rachel she would take care of it, hung up, and jumped in her car. She managed to calm herself down while she raced back to the murder site. No one was on her trail yet. As long as she got the phone, everything would be fine. It was just frustrating that she had to waste her afternoon. After Sheila parked in the woods, she carefully retraced her steps, texting Rachel's phone repeatedly, listening for the buzz. After a few minutes of looking, she found it lying in the grass. Relieved, she grabbed it and headed home without another thought. Meanwhile, Dave went back to Skylar's room to look around and found the window screen had been dislodged. When he saw the window was propped open a few inches, his heart sank. Skylar must have snuck out the night before and hadn't returned home. At this point, Dave and Mary didn't know that their daughter had been sneaking out. They thought it was extremely unlike Skylar to leave without letting her parents know where she was going. Dave immediately feared the worst. Shortly after 4 p.m., his concern turned to panic when Skylar's manager called and told Mary that Skylar hadn't shown up for her shift. She almost never missed work, and her parents were certain something was seriously wrong. As soon as Mary hung up, she told Dave to call 911. While Skylar's parents talked to the police, their daughter's killers planned their next move. Sheila laid on her bed and stared at the ceiling. Now that Rachel's phone was safe, things were back on schedule. As long as they hadn't stupidly dropped any more evidence, there was nothing to prove they had been anywhere near the forest. Still, she knew it was only a matter of time before people started asking them questions. They were Skylar's best friends after all. Sooner or later, police would figure out that Sheila and Rachel had seen Skylar that night. If they didn't get ahead of the story, authorities might get curious. Luckily, she had everything figured out. Sheila knew the nieces cared about her, and if she could convince them she was innocent, there was no way the police would consider her a suspect. She figured the best way to deflect suspicion would be to confess seeing Skylar before her parents or the authorities found out on their own. She'd just tell everyone that she and Rachel had dropped Skylar safely back home after sneaking out and then pretend to be shocked that she was missing. It would be easy and maybe even a little fun. A smile crept over Sheila's face as she sat up in bed. She pulled out her phone, faked a few sniffles to get into character, and then dialed Skylar's parents. Dave had just finished talking to the police when his phone rang again. Exhausted from talking all day, Mary answered instead. It was Sheila, and she sounded scared. She told Mary that she had to confess the truth about what had happened the previous night. Sheila said that she, Rachel, and Skylar had snuck out. She claimed that the three of them had driven around town for a while and then dropped Skylar back at home. Sheila and Rachel hadn't actually picked Skylar up until 12.30, but Sheila insisted that the last time she spoke to Skylar was around 11.45 or midnight when their night ended. Mary was too worried to be angry, 
and graciously accepted Sheila's offer to help them search for her daughter. At around 4.30 p.m., Sheila and her mother, Tara, went door to door with Mary, asking if anyone in the neighborhood had seen Skylar. Sheila felt a rush as her lies piled on top of one another. She was unstoppable. While Sheila pretended to look for Skylar, Rachel was busy getting ready for church camp. She was leaving town the following morning and would be gone for a couple of weeks. She hoped that would give her enough time to settle her nerves, but she wasn't doing very well so far. Sheila was better at this than her, but Rachel promised herself she would keep it together for both of their sakes. Once the heat died down, they would finally be together without having to worry about Skylar ruining their fun. While Rachel packed, she told herself over and over that everything would turn out okay. Shortly before 5 p.m., the police arrived at the niece's. No one in the neighborhood had seen Skylar, but Mary remembered there were cameras outside of their apartment complex. She hurried to the small security office, accompanied by the landlord, a police officer, Sheila, and her mother. Sheila was terrified as the fuzzy tape started playing, but kept her composure even as she saw the grainy image of her silver sedan pulling onto the screen at 12.31 a.m. Everyone in the room watched as Skylar crossed the street and got into the car. The footage was blurry, but Sheila feared she was seconds away from being caught. She held her breath as the room fell silent. The first one to speak was the landlord, who speculated that the vehicle was an SUV. The others weren't sure, but the image quality was so bad that no one could tell what kind of vehicle it was. Not even Sheila's own mother recognized her daughter's car. The officer asked Sheila again what time she picked up Skylar, and she repeated her lie that it was around 11 p.m. The adults assumed that someone else had come for Skylar after her best friends left. As the adults squinted at the tiny screen, Sheila smiled to herself. They had no idea that the person they were looking for was sitting right next to them. Coming up, Sheila follows the police investigation as rumors about Skylar's disappearance spread. Listeners, this month marks 60 years since John F. Kennedy became the 35th president of the United States, ushering his already prominent family into the highest enclaves of political power. But behind their storied successes lie secrets and scandals so severe, if it were any other lineage, they would have been left in ruin. This January, to commemorate this iconic milestone, dig into the dramas of a real-life American dynasty and the Spotify original from Parcast, The Kennedys. This exclusive series from Spotify features your favorite podcast hosts, covering every angle of the Kennedys from shows like Conspiracy Theories, Crime Countdown, Medical Murders, and others. Assassinations and Conspiracies, Corruption and Cover-Ups, International Affairs, and Extramarital Ones, too. Examine all of the Kennedy family's most controversial moments, all in one place. You can binge all 12 episodes of this limited series starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Follow The Kennedys free and exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. On July 6, 2012, 
16-year-old Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schoaf murdered their best friend, Skylar Niece. In an effort to convince Skylar's parents that she was innocent, Sheila offered to help them search for their missing daughter. Dave and Mary Niece prayed that Skylar had simply run away for the weekend. It would have been completely unlike her to do that, but police reassured them it was common for teenagers in the area. When Sunday came and went without a word, Dave and Mary were heartbroken. Skylar was officially missing. Officer Jessica Colbank was assigned as the lead investigator for the case. Known for her persistence and no-nonsense attitude, Officer Colbank got straight to work combing through the missing girl's phone records. Right away, she noticed something interesting. On the night of Skylar's murder, she had called Sheila six times just before midnight. Colbank also discovered that the last call made to Skylar's phone was from Rachel. It wasn't much, but it was enough for Colbank to suspect Sheila knew more than she claimed. She paid Sheila a visit and had the teenager recount her last night with Skylar. After Sheila repeated the same story that was already on record, adding that the trio had gone on the joyride in order to smoke marijuana, Colbank asked her why she hadn't been reaching out to Skylar on social media. Considering the girls talked online all the time, Colbank found it odd that Sheila hadn't tried to contact Skylar once. Sheila claimed it was because she was too upset. Colbank didn't buy it, but no matter what she asked, Sheila stuck to her story. By the time the interview was over, Colbank wasn't any closer to finding Skylar. Though their conversation wasn't as revealing as she'd hoped, she had learned a lot about Sheila and she didn't like what she saw. Colbank immediately found Sheila to be arrogant and evasive. Though she didn't have any proof, her instincts told her Sheila was lying. For her part, Sheila could tell Colbank wasn't like the other officers she'd spoken to. She was blunt and serious. No matter how hard Sheila tried, she couldn't seem to convince Colbank that she was being honest. After that first meeting, however, Sheila redoubled her efforts to help find Skylar. If Colbank didn't think she was helping enough before, surely she'd have to believe her now. Sheila likely thought she could prove her innocence by overcompensating with phony sympathy. Sheila began to play the part of the overly concerned friend. In the week that followed, she joined Dave and Mary's neighborhood searches, hung flyers, and constantly asked them about the progress of the investigation. She was eager to know everything she could about the search for Skylar. The nieces assumed Sheila was just worried about her friend and they updated her whenever they could. They had no idea that the 16-year-old was keeping her ear to the ground to make sure the police weren't on her trail. Over the next month, news of Skylar's disappearance spread primarily through Facebook. After a page dedicated to the investigation was formed, it was soon shared by strangers across the country, all desperate to help find the missing teen. The case even made its way to the FBI, who teamed up with the local authorities to solve the mystery. Officer Colbank was joined by Special Agent Morgan Spurlock, and together they went to interview Rachel on July 19th. Having recently returned from church camp, Rachel had been offline for the last couple of weeks. She didn't know much about the growing investigation. Officer Colbank had called her once while she was still at camp, 
but Rachel claimed to not have any information and recommended she talk to Sheila instead. Now that the police were at her doorstep, Rachel was nervous. As they sat down to talk, her inexperience at lying became painfully clear. While Sheila had been calm and composed during her interview, Rachel seemed incredibly suspicious. She was fidgety, struggled to make eye contact, and regularly suggested they refer their questions to Sheila. Officer Colbank had a feeling Rachel was lying and that she could be thrown off balance. Sure enough, when they asked the girl about where the trio had driven the night they all snuck out, Rachel slipped. It was a small contradiction regarding street names, but enough to confirm Colbank's suspicions that Rachel and Sheila were hiding something. Unfortunately, Rachel spent the rest of their meeting repeating Sheila's official statement word for word. She claimed not to remember much else. When the officers left, they had learned very little, but both knew they were being played. While Rachel was panicking, Sheila was at home, probably scrolling the Team Skylar Facebook page. She understood why Rachel was always worried, but wished she could just relax. Everything was going fine. The rumors on Facebook were that Skylar had run away with some boy, or overdosed, or was kidnapped by strangers. No one suspected the two of them were involved. She hoped Rachel would calm down soon. Her nerves weren't exactly making Sheila feel any better. It was a good thing she felt confident enough for the both of them. By the time the school year began in mid-August, Skylar had been missing for over a month. Her disappearance was on everyone's mind. Those students were discouraged from talking about the investigation on campus. The hallways buzzed with gossip. And unlike the theories online, much of it involved Sheila and Rachel. It seemed that everywhere the girls turned, gossip followed. The more their classmates whispered, the more they sheltered themselves from others. By September, they barely talked to anyone else. Sheila kept her composure, but Rachel couldn't stand the stress. She hated being talked about and was afraid that she would be arrested at any moment. Things got even worse when authorities arrived at the high school on September 7th. There, they took Sheila and Rachel's cell phones and told them they'd be searching their houses as well. Rachel was petrified. By the end of the day, almost the entire school knew the police had been talking to the girls. Rumors of their involvement in Skylar's disappearance exploded and the gossip became impossible for Rachel to tune out. Soon, students started openly accusing the two girls of hiding something. The mounting pressure caused Rachel to break down in tears during class more than once. Some days were so bad that Rachel and Sheila skipped school entirely. Meanwhile, Officer Colbank spent weeks poring over the girls' phone records. Tens of thousands of texts and calls revealed an alarming pattern of bickering and division. Most importantly, they showed that between 11 p.m. and midnight on the evening of the disappearance, Sheila and Rachel weren't with Skylar on a joyride. They were texting each other from different locations. Skylar hadn't been picked up yet. This poked a massive hole in their story and proved that the girls had lied about when and where they went. Colbank began to wonder what had really happened that night. 
and why the girls were trying so hard to cover it up. Kolbing and the other detectives speculated that a serious accident must have befallen Skylar while the three of them were smoking. Maybe Skylar fell and hit her head, or perhaps she overdosed on some other drug. These were just working theories, but they were enough to bring Sheila and Rachel back for more questioning. In late November 2012, the girls were called to the station again. After presenting Rachel with the new evidence, she changed her story. She now claimed that the girls had dropped Skylar at a friend's place instead of back at her house. Sheila was questioned next before she and Rachel had the chance to align their alibis. Unlike Rachel, Sheila remained unflappable and stuck with her original statement. For the first time in months, their accounts didn't match and detectives knew they had caught the girls in a lie. When Sheila found out Rachel had changed her story without consulting her, she was furious. She had to think fast and come up with another version of events they took to the police the very next day. This time, they told the police that they, along with Skylar, drove to Brave, Pennsylvania to smoke marijuana. But after an argument, Skylar supposedly ran into the woods. They said they looked for hours but were never able to find her. They had lied about dropping her off at the end of the night. When their stories started to unravel, investigators officially listed Sheila and Rachel as suspects in Skylar's disappearance. The closer Colbank got to busting them, the more Sheila doubled down. To prove they were telling the truth, the girls even agreed to take a lie detector test in mid-December. Sheila was overly confident she would pass. She told Rachel it would all be easy. But to Officer Colbank's delight, she failed twice. It was Rachel's turn next, but she couldn't take the pressure. While her father drove her to the police station, she panicked and bolted from the car when it stopped in traffic. Rusty Shelf watched, bewildered as his daughter ran down the street and disappeared into a nearby neighborhood. When the police heard Rachel fled, they knew the girls were guilty of something. After Sheila's mother, Tara, came to the station to get her daughter's phone, Colbank told her they suspected the girls were hiding important information. Tara insisted that the girls were innocent and were just acting out because they were scared teenagers. She got in a heated argument with Colbank, who accused her of helping Sheila and Rachel cover up the truth. After Tara stormed out in tears, Colbank realized she made a mistake. She had lost her composure and made the case personal. But it was too late. The next morning, her commanding officers removed her from the case. After months of dogged pursuit, Sheila and Rachel's biggest adversary was out of the picture. When we return, Rachel's guilt threatens to bubble over. Now, back to the story. In December 2012, police investigating the disappearance of 16-year-old Skylar Niece identified her best friends, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schof, as prime suspects. Investigators were convinced the girls were hiding something, but didn't have any hard evidence to back their suspicions up. As Christmas approached, Sheila remained calm as always. She knew the police still didn't have enough to convict her of anything. 
Without Skylar's body, they had nothing more than intuition. In her mind, she was still in the clear. Rachel, on the other hand, was overcome by guilt. She regularly broke down in tears and threw tantrums at school. She became erratic and unstable, constantly worried that the police were following her, sick to her stomach almost every day. 16-year-old Rachel was about to burst. In a 2014 article, psychologist Dr. Guy Winch explained that unresolved guilt can make it challenging for a person to focus on everyday life. Concentration, productivity, and work all suffer. This often makes it impossible for a guilty party to enjoy themselves, causing a spiral of painful emotions and mental strain. Rachel's nerves had been pushed to their limits for almost six months. At home, in school, and online, she could never escape the constant pressure to confess. The only time she felt safe was with Sheila. She wished they could just run away together because the moment Sheila left her alone, her guilt became too much to bear. Things came to a head on December 28, 2012, after Rachel and her mother Patricia returned home from a short Christmas vacation. As usual, Rachel was in a sour mood and longed to leave her mother behind. She wanted to retreat to her father's house as soon as possible. Her dad, Rusty Schof, had been divorced from Patricia for years. He was softer on Rachel than her mother and still allowed her to get together with Sheila, even though Patricia had forbidden the two from seeing each other. She believed Sheila was a bad influence. Rachel thought she would be staying with her father after the vacation, but considering her mental state, Patricia and Rusty decided it would be best to come together as a family. After Christmas, Rusty planned to move into Patricia's house for a while so they could all be in one place. When Rachel found out about this, she panicked. She knew her mother would never let her see Sheila again. She was about to lose the only person in the world she could confide in. Rachel screamed upon hearing the news and rampaged through the house, throwing things against the wall. When Patricia and Rusty tried to restrain her, she attacked them both, punching her own mother in the face. After she broke free, she burst out of the house and started shouting throughout the neighborhood. Patricia called 911 while Rachel ran back inside and barricaded herself in her room. She howled that her parents were ruining her life and threatened to harm herself unless they changed their minds. By the time the police arrived, Rachel's parents had calmed her down slightly. The responding officer recommended they seek medical help and her parents drove her to the hospital. Rachel spent the next six days decompressing at the Chestnut Ridge Psychiatric Center. When the authorities found out she had broken down, they suspected her crushing guilt was the cause. Knowing this was a crucial moment when Rachel may finally come clean, they requested she be brought to the station. On the morning of January 3rd, 2013, Rachel was ready to confess. At this point, Police had theorized that Skylar might have overdosed on drugs or had fallen in the woods and hit her head. They believed that whatever had happened was an accident and that the girls had simply been too afraid to say anything. Ready to finally hear the truth, they asked Rachel what really happened the night Skylar's niece went missing. 
When she told them that she and Sheila had stabbed Skylar, they were speechless. In stunned silence, officers listened as Rachel told them about her plan to kill Skylar with Sheila and how they did it. When asked why they murdered their friend, Rachel said, we just didn't like her. Astonished and horrified, the police negotiated a plea deal with Rachel's lawyer on the condition that she could lead them to Skylar's remains. They left for the woods right away. While Rachel led the police to Skylar's body, Sheila was back at her home with no idea she'd been exposed. For all she knew, Rachel was still in the hospital, recovering from her breakdown. Sheila could only hope that she was doing okay. With her conscience relieved, Rachel was indeed feeling better than she had in months. When the police cruiser arrived at the site of Skylar's murder, Rachel felt an odd sense of relief. She couldn't tell whether she was happy that she'd done the right thing or just glad it was finally going to be over for good. She did her best to lead investigators to the general area where she and Sheila had left Skylar's body. Unfortunately, there had been a heavy snowfall a few days earlier and they couldn't find the remains. Until the snow melted, they were out of luck. It was impossible to know how long that would take, but police refused to pause the investigation in the meantime. They asked Rachel if she'd be willing to try and catch Sheila on tape confessing to the murder. She agreed and the following afternoon, she was wired with a microphone and sent on her way to Sheila's. Sheila threw open the door and gave Rachel a big hug. She hadn't seen her in weeks and had so many questions about the hospital. She insisted she tried to visit Rachel twice but wasn't allowed inside. But now that they were together, she could finally cheer up her best friend. The two of them scrolled Twitter and watched some TV together, but Rachel constantly killed the mood by bringing up Skylar. Sheila refused to talk about it and brushed her off. Why did she still care about Skylar? She wasn't important anymore. Just when Rachel was finally loosening up, she had to leave, but Sheila wouldn't let her go before posing for a picture. She had to make sure everyone knew how strong they were. Nothing could stop them from being together. Rachel's sting was a bust and the police were stuck once again. Sheila hadn't revealed anything incriminating and until they could find Skylar's body, they couldn't arrest the girls. In the meantime, Rachel's parents spent as much time with her as they could. They pulled her out of school, took away her phone and computer and tried their best to be a normal family with the little time they had left. On January 16, 2013, the police returned to the murder site with the canine unit. The snow had barely melted, but after a few hours of searching, they finally found the body. Months of exposure had left the remains unrecognizable, and though the DNA test would take some time to confirm it, they knew it was Skylar. At long last, on May 1, 2013, Rachel turned herself in and Sheila was arrested. The evidence was undeniable, and after 10 months of waiting, justice had finally been done. For her help with solving the case, Rachel was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Sheila was found guilty of first-degree murder 
and received a life sentence with eligibility for parole after 15 years. Throughout the proceedings, Dave and Mary Niece never got an answer as to exactly why the girls murdered their daughter. As Rachel said, they simply didn't like Skylar. Now that they're behind bars, it's unlikely we'll ever know the true motive, but the case provides a chilling reminder that sometimes teenage drama can be deadly serious. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Skylar Niece amongst the many sources we used, we found Pretty Little Killers, The Truth Behind the Savage Murder of Skylar Niece by Daylene Berry and Jeffrey C. Fuller, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Fact, fiction, fame. Discover the real story behind one of history's most formidable families in the Spotify original from Parcast, The Kennedys. Remember, you can binge all 12 episodes starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Spotify.